Welcome to the Life Sciences WA Investment Series. Investor meets Innovator. Hosted by Dr. Tracy Wilkinson and me, Peter Birch. In this limited podcast series, we've brought together a number of conversations with experts from medical science to finance to help demystify investing in biotech, medtech, and digital health, also known as the life sciences. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connection to land, seas, and community. We pay respect to elders past, present, and emerging, and extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. The information in this podcast is general in nature and should not be taken as a substitute for professional or financial advice. Welcome to the Life Sciences WA Investor Meets Innovator podcast. You're joined by myself, Peter Birch, and Tracy Wilkinson. Hello, Tracy. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Pete. How are you? Good. Here for another episode of Season 2, we've been exploring the area of life sciences in Western Australia and, and really understanding the landscape from a bunch of people who were doing the doing and, and giving us those first-hand experiences so we can learn more about this exciting space of life sciences, particularly through the lens of Western Australia. And th- this one was close to your heart, an area that you, you've got some good understanding and such an important one as well, that, that point of taking an idea basically from the early stages into execution, right? Absolutely. Yes, I used to be a tech transfer professional, so this is something that is near and dear to my heart. And it is, I guess, the key role of tech transfer. You can hear the interest in my voice, can't you, as soon as I start <laughs> to talk about something like this. Um, it's that role of getting things out of the university and into the real world, whether that's a license or a startup. And so understanding what that function is, how it works, how they go about their job, I think is a really important piece of the puzzle, so to speak, if you're going to understand this broader idea of how you invest in the life sciences. And Angela brought her academic and researcher perspective to that as well. I think that's another piece that's really important to get your head around and get that insight into uh, how does a researcher think? Why are they doing this? How are they doing this? And super interesting conversation from both of them. Yeah, and look, I one thing I took out of it particularly was uh, I think it was Simon who who got into quite a bit of detail about the importance of some of those commercial arrangements and thinking as an academic, thinking beyond just the standard sources of funding, such an important topic right now, particularly in this current climate. Absolutely. So here's the conversation that I had with Simon Hanford and Dr. Angela Fonseca. Well, good morning from Woodjack, Noongarbuja. I'd like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. And today I'm joined by Dr. Angela Fonseca, biomedical researcher at the University of Western Australia, who co-founded a biotech startup, Lixa, and Simon Hanford, who worked in commercialisation at UWA also for lots of years, let's just say, (laughs) (laughs) and he's recently retired. And the topic of our conversation today is all about academic tech transfer, commercialisation of intellectual property developed at universities. And I think I'm really looking forward to this conversation because that was the area that I used to work in a couple of years ago. So, Simon, I'm going to come to you first. What does a university tech transfer office do? Well, it's interesting because I think the whole commercialisation, when people think about commercialisation, it's normally sort of boiled down to looking for intellectual property that comes out of the research groups 
finding an IP position and then trying to commercialize it, generate some income, some revenue one way or the other. And there's various ways which you can do that. And we're probably going to be getting into a bit of that throughout the conversation. But that's only a part of what a tech transfer office ends up doing. And I think one of the forgotten roles of a technology transfer office is helping researchers make the most of the research that they're doing, whether or not there's any commercial potential identified right at the coalface of the research group. So certainly through my sort of nearly 20 years of research Oh, no, commercialization. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly through that long period of time working at UWI, we spent an awful lot of time working with researchers, trying to sort of protect the potential that their research might offer. And I think it's a bit of a forgotten role, and it's a bit of a forgotten uh, function of offices where we would think about things like confidentiality and whether it's appropriate or not for a researcher to talk about their really exciting preliminary findings with another university group or with an industry partner. So we'd spend a lot of time sort of getting confidentiality agreements in place. We'd spend a lot of time making sure that if researchers wanted to bring materials in from an industry partner or from a different research group, that things like material transfer agreements were put in place to protect the outcome of the work that they would do using those materials so that they had freedom to operate on the research findings that they were going to do. And then we'd spend a lot of time making sure that things like research collaboration agreements were put in place so that universities could collaborate together or universities and industry partners could collaborate together. And things like the basic IP principles as to how IP would be shared between parties would be documented and understood in case there was something to commercialize later on. So we actually spent a lot of time sort of uh, shepherding and sort of to some extent policing the intellectual property at the university, even before we ever looked at commercializing anything. So, you know, it was a, quite a big sort of role, which was really sort of enjoyable and challenging and something that we always would take very seriously. But I really guess the... important because it feels like if you don't do that work, then you kind of, it, it can't go any further in a commercial sense without some of those things in place, Right. You don't want to shoot yourself in the foot before you start, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember one time when we had a researcher who was very keen on accessing a material, an antibody, I think, for a bit of research in one of the biomedical labs. And they could find it from an industry partner and they could get it for free. But under the terms of the provider's material transfer agreement, the provider would own all the intellectual property that was created through the use of that material. And it was a question of, well, can you buy this somewhere else. And we found out that we could buy the antibody from somewhere else. It was going to be one or $2,000 to buy it. And it just made sense to buy the thing and avoid all of that complicated IP stuff. So, you know, you have to be careful sometimes with agreements that you're presented with. So, yeah, I mean, that was actually quite a, an enjoyable part of the role was protecting the potential of the research, even at a very early stage. I like that phrase, protecting the potential of the research. I think that's a really important part of it. And I feel like it's work that isn't seen, to your point before. Mm. Like it's not something that's seen outside the university. Sometimes I suspect it's not seen within the university either, except when it doesn't happen and yeah. then it's seen. <laughs> yeah, 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 quite right. Yeah. Um, Angie, I'm going to come to you to ask you your perspectives because you are a scientist and a researcher and so you've had a perspective of working together with a tech transfer office at UWA. 
How did that look like from your perspective? What kind of touch points did you have? Yeah, kind of what Simon says, actually. Um, well, that's good. Yeah, <laughs> which is good. We actually, we worked together a little bit as Simon was moving on. I was kind of starting up. So we've, we've had a little bit of overlap in working together. And initially it was a case of we knew we had something exciting and we knew we had something that had commercial potential. And so the next step was, okay, we don't understand what we need to do to protect this. So let's ask the commercialisation office. And uh, there's a little bit of a process that Mm. UWA has set up, you know, some paperwork to kind of shepherd you through those initial points. I guess scary paperwork. Yeah, I guess to see whether it it should go through the office or not. (laughs) And then we just, we went from there. So that, that was the initial process and that was the initial touch point. We, th- we then allocated a project manager who we met with regularly after that to determine where the project was at in terms of its milestones and which, at which point it would be appropriate to take it to the next step in terms of protection. Okay, so it's really you as a researcher and an academic, a scientist mm. who's not been trained and shouldn't be trained actually from, from some perspectives of understanding the commercial pathway of getting your intellectual property out of university and turning it into a real tangible product yeah at that's some right. point in the future yeah that's right although I have to say I think it is important for scientists research scientists to understand the value of what they have and also where they stand in terms of that particular finding or that particular discovery because I think we're so used to being pushed around quite a bit and it's a very competitive environment that we work in in terms of funding, very low success rates in terms of grant funding. And so to get something across the line, even to get a project to completion is very, very difficult. Just combined with managing staff and managing facilities and all of those other things that that come into the mix. Very enjoyable. Like, I mean, it's a great job. I love it. But there's a lot of pressures on it. And I think it's important to understand that sometimes you forget the value of what you're doing. You just kind of are going through the motions of it. And I think when it gets to a point where it is really valued by someone, you're then not coming to the table as an equal partner. You're kind of coming as a little bit diminished and maybe giving them a little bit more say as to how things go. Oh, that's interesting. Thank you for sharing that. I know that the Federal Department of Education is putting a lot of money in the coming years into training PhDs and postgrads mm, yeah. in this yeah. in this space. So I'm pretty excited about that. I think it's really that opportunity. Yeah. Also because it's another revenue stream for researchers and it's really, I think, in the landscape that we have at the moment where it is so competitive and so hard to generate sustainable income. It's a really important revenue stream that researchers can really explore and look at what they can offer. And so understanding that's really important. I think as well, researchers do a lot of research and they need, to, they so. need to publish. You know, publication is, is, is part of the technology transfer sort of ecosystem, if you like. That's how knowledge gets shared around. That ha- happens for most researchers. You know, they'll do a lot of research, they'll publish that. If the research that can be done, if the grant applications that can be written and proposed can have an element of sort of thinking about what's going to happen, what the use is going to be of the potential outcomes of that research and how that research might be applied in the future, whether it's commercial or not. I think that's a really important thing for researchers to factor into their thinking at a really early stage, thinking about clearly they're doing some research that's 
interesting to them and it's going to be interesting to other people in their field. But if you can find some research that's interesting and also useful, that's where little sort of nuggets of commercial potential come. You know, if you find something interesting, useful, and we're sat in the offices of a patent agent here recording this, if it's IP that's protectable, you know, that's where the technology transfer office gets excited and starts thinking about, you know, that's really, you know, might have some sort of legs to be commercializable. I think for me anyway, and, and I think it's the same for, for pretty much all researchers, and I know you guys have told me this in conversations we've had previously, the issue is as a researcher, we're measured on our metrics. Mm. So we're measured on our track record. We're measured on how many publications we get out there. And because we interacted with commercialization office so early on, we were told, please just do not publish. You know, if you can, don't, don't mention this too far, too wide. Try and keep it under wraps if you do want this to go down that track. And so we did do that, but it was to the detriment of my track record. And also in terms of grant funding, having been a reviewer and, you know, sitting, having sat around the table at NHMRC reviews, what gets funded is what's sexy. And mm. if you can put out there what it is and get a grant panel excited about it, similar to an investor almost, then you're more likely to get the funding. So framing up your story in a way to get that initial seed funding from funding bodies to get yourself up and off the ground to then explore the investment type of um, process or pathway. It's challenging to navigate that road when you've been asked not to do a full reveal. So it's kind of really thinking about your narrative and, and your story and how you present it. Yeah. And that makes your grant applications read better, right? When you have an understanding of, I mean, I'm going to use words translation and impact. I mm. think in this, most research is done to have an impact, a positive impact on people, either whether it's increasing our knowledge base or actually translating into, in our case, a novel therapeutic or a novel diagnostic device. So we're trying to translate to have impact and the translation in this space is very expensive and takes a lot of time, therefore you need a business model. But I would actually argue and even if you were translating training models, there's going to be an expense to actually turning that into a real life product. Ergo, you need to have a business model. So the thinking processes are still the same in terms of treating this like a business concept, looking at the commercial angles of this. So I think it's a really important part of research, obviously, because that's what I used to do. (laughs) But I think that's kind of the point, isn't it? What Coming back to what we were saying earlier and what Simon has said a couple of times is, you kind of have to position yourself as a researcher quite early on and go, right, okay, I've got this finding. What's actually most important? Is it most important that I just have an income for the next five years or is it that I want this to achieve some kind of commercial success? And that's really where it's how much of a reveal are you going to do? And that's the true tug of war that goes on for a researcher because that's the kind of pressure that's on you. Um, agreed, yeah. agreed. And I think that also gives our audience some interesting perspectives into the, I guess, the barriers and the challenges within an academic environment in this space, which is really what I wanted to get out of the conversation. So thank you both. The The next question that I wanted to talk about was to get a little bit into the weeds of what it looks like when someone like Ange comes to someone like the Tech Transfer Office at UWA 
and says, I've got an invention. I think that we should patent it. I think that it could be useful and it's interesting mm. and protectable. Can you, with, without, I know that it's a really long and complicated <laughs> process, so this is a really difficult question, Simon, but can you kind of step us through a little bit what that looks like from your side? Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess, so the role of the office when it comes to the sort of more sort of classical commercialisation of IP role that we have really starts with identifying, then protecting, then developing, and then hopefully commercialising the intellectual property that is disclosed to us. And most universities have an IP policy that lots of people love to read and get to grips with and, and follow, of course. But part of that IP policy at UWA was that researchers needed to disclose intellectual property with commercial potential. So the mechanism by which researchers would hopefully disclose IP, and if you like, the sort of like official starting point of getting that on our radar in the tech transfer office is to fill out an invention disclosure form. So that's like the, the official starting point for us in the office. The unofficial starting point is to call us up and meet for a coffee and tell us about your really interesting preliminary findings or the grant application that you've got an industry partner who's keen to put something in for, you know, they've got, they've got some interest in the research area that you want to do and uh, are keen to collaborate on a grant application. Those sorts of conversations before an invention disclosure can sort of help us appreciate the research that you're doing as a researcher and the potential that it might have if you can get the funding and if you can generate some interesting data. But it can also sort of help have conversations with industry or investors at a really, really early stage to see whether the idea is the sort of thing that someone might want to take a punt on at a really early stage. So that's all possible. And the advice would be, make sure you know who's in your tech transfer office, get them to buy you a coffee, you know, take you out somewhere, explain what you're doing. Those sorts of conversations within the university are confidential. So you don't need to worry about talking about what you're doing with your university colleagues. But to get back to the question about the commercialization process, if a researcher feels as though they have something, then yeah, I mean, what we'd love to see is an invention disclosure completed. Most universities have technology transfer offices. Technology transfer offices will have websites where you can download an invention disclosure form or fill out an, on an online form and submit it. They're normally quite simple, three or four pages that just sort of set the scene, the background as to how the research has come about, who's been involved, how the project has been funded, which is always interesting and can have some, some bearing on what you can and can't do with the outcomes of that research. Also, uh, on, because it's, just, yeah. it's complicated. Absolutely. Now, and yeah, yeah. you need to check that the university actually owns the RP. For sure. Right. Have you been reading my notes? <laughs> Lived experience. <laughs> <laughs> There's two really big things. You're quite right. IP ownership is absolutely crucial. If the technology transfer office is going to start talking to industry partners or investors, we're going to be needing to be absolutely confident that we own the IP that we're going to be promoting. So there's nothing more important probably than IP ownership, perhaps other than prior disclosure, making sure that the IP that we're trying to protect and capitalize uh, hasn't been disclosed if it's the sort of IP that we're looking to get a patent position on. So that IP ownership understanding is crucial, as is the prior publication, really making sure that 
if we're going to follow the patenting route that hasn't been disclosed anywhere. And I should point out also lived experience on this particular area. That sounds easy, but it's incredibly hard because how many years had you been working in your area and before you would have submitted an invention disclosure? Oh, we did it very early, so I don't, I don't think we were the norm there. But yes. you had been a researcher for many years. Oh, yes, yes, for and many years. And had received many research funding grants and that's generally the, the, generally the idea. Yes. And some of them are philanthropic, some of them might be the Wellcome Trust or they could be international yeah. as well as Australian. And like you said, they all have different conditions around and the considerations mm. around the intellectual property and the that's ownership. Right. Um, so it's almost, you feel like a little detective, or at least I used to feel like a little detective, like going back to see like what research grants they'd received and yeah, what, yeah, yeah. what yeah. the topic of that was and whether that would impact on the project that had been put to you. And I think this is where it's a little bit different for me is that we knew straight away we had something um, with like literally the first experiment. We were like, oh, my God. I mean, I, I remember running up to the clinician I was working with, to his office to go, oh, my goodness, it worked. You had a eureka moment. Yeah, and he was like, <laughs> he literally said, shut the door, don't tell anyone. <laughs> and so he'd obviously engage with the office. <laughs> I'm, right, pleased so, I'm really pleased to hear that. So it was literally from the first experiment. And that's where I think when I look at people around me and even, you know, being around the industry a little bit now as well and hearing these conversations about IP, so lucky in a way that that happened early on because it just positioned us and it meant that all the grant, the subsequent grants that we got, we never did a reveal. We just talked about impact and translation, like you said earlier. And that's how we got the money in to get us going. And it meant that when it came to the commercialization part, which was a couple of years later, where we knew, you know, we had validated it a fair bit more by then. When they went digging in to do their due diligence on our IP position, it was clean because we hadn't done a reveal. And so it made it very clear uh, where the IP stood and how it could be licensed. So that was very lucky. But I can that's see... particularly lucky for you to yeah, transfer. Really yeah, really lucky. And, you know, for the company as well. But I can see for a lot of others, it's much more a convoluted pathway because they haven't had their, you know, they haven't had the glasses on to kind of go, right, how is my IP position going to be compromised if I take on this particular body of funding or, you know, apply for this particular uh, funding call even? Because um, like you were saying, funding bodies are all looking at their sustainability models as well and they see IP as this potential cash cow, which I don't think it necessarily is but it really complicates the position for everyone. Yeah, it does. And, and to put a little bit more detail around that, when we talk about sustainability of funding schemes, what we mean is that some of the philanthropic foundations that are inputting really valuable money and much appreciated money into medical research are now including clauses in those funding calls that say, if you make any money from commercialisation of this research, mm. we would like a little bit back, please. And the terms around that vary widely mm. and that makes sense, like you say, from a sustainability because they just want to have some more money come back in to the pie to distribute out again. Mm. But it is an extra layer of complication for folks like Simon who are trying to do all the due diligence behind the IP. Yeah, I think absolutely. also for investors as well, even, you know, mm. the next step along, they come in and they're like, oh, it's already been diluted and so that also adds a layer of um, 
consideration for them too. And I don't think funding bodies fully understand that. Yeah, we've certainly got projects at UWA where the revenue that comes in at the mm -hmm. moment does get returned to some of the very original grant funders from years and years ago. And that was a condition of the funding. So we follow that and abide that position. I guess getting back to the invention disclosure, if I can. Sorry, we did go off track there, sorry. <laughs> the invention disclosure mechanism is really the way to get any sort of skeletons out of the closet. We really need to know everything that's gone on behind the scenes in terms of the funding, the collaborations, any full or partial disclosures of intellectual property that might have happened, just so that we can sort of really get to grips with, that, with whether it's the sort of project that we can take down a commercialization route, or maybe, unfortunately, have to put a stop on if there's some real problems with parts of the, the project. So the way that we would operate at UWA and many other tech transfer offices is to Look at an invention disclosure, try and work out whether there's an IP position to protect, whether it's something that's patentable or some copyright and some software maybe, or some, some other position, maybe even just a confidential position that we've got. Do some market research around what a potential business proposition might look like in terms of making sure there's a, a market for the product or the technology that we're hoping to commercialize. That might mean having conversations with people who operate in that space, you know, getting some confidentiality agreements in place and talking to people with the researcher alongside us, you know, to sort of make sure that what we think has potential resonates with other people, whether they're potential industry partners for the future or future investors. And then if we're confident in that, then we'll sort of decide as an office to put resources into that and, and promote that project as an active, a, sort of a live commercialization opportunity. I'm trying to think what the ratio might have been if we were to see at UWA maybe 40 invention disclosures a year was roughly what we'd see. I reckon we might take on maybe about a third of those every year we'd take on as active projects. Maybe a third would be a bit early, so we'd sort of send them back into a research cycle and encourage them to generate some maybe some different data to see whether it's going to hold up with a, a different application in mind. So yeah, we'd sort of take on probably 15 to 20 projects a year. And then ultimately, you're hoping to try and attract some partners to bring some money in at an early stage to de-risk and validate the technology whilst you're constantly having conversations about what the potential of this research and this early, these early stage findings might have with a view to traditionally either trying to license the technology or form a startup company around the IP. So that's the sort of, you know, the, the role of the office, if you like, and the, the way that an invention disclosure can kick things off. I imagine the next question might be about funding. How do you fund the development of IP? <laughs> That'd be an excellent question. <laughs> do you do that? Did you solve that? Uh, look, I'm not sure we solved it. We certainly had, we were fortunate at UWA to have some proof of concept funding. So within the office, researchers could apply for admittedly quite small amounts of money to do some proof of concept funding to really test the technology in a bit of a different situation to generate some data that might be really important in terms of validating the technology but might not necessarily be academically interesting or the sort of work that you might be able to publish or want to publish with any luck it might be but you know sometimes you need to do experiments that investors want to see rather than experiments that might 
again, generate some interesting data or an interesting sort of research lead. So Pathfinder funding is available at UWA and other universities will have their own proof of concept funding. And then beyond that, the office and the project managers in the tech transfer office would always be looking for commercialization funding that we could apply for, often using Pathfinder as a bit of a matching funding. You know, if we can put Pathfinder in and use that to leverage some other early stage government funding, we'd always try and do that as well. So early stage funding is critical. If you can tap into your proof of concept fund, great. Make sure you're looking at the state and federal early stage funding schemes. Or if you're lucky enough to find an investor or a potential licensee that likes the look of the work that you're commercializing, we would often offer options over technologies and get a simple option agreement in place where the potential licensee or the potential investor might fund a bit of work, possibly alongside Pathfinder, and if that work panned out and they wanted to exercise their option to proceed with a license or a startup, we'd do that as a sort of simple way of just edging things along. In a simple way for something that is very much not simple. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or easy. i just add to that um, in terms of the funding pathway and also as a researcher wanting to keep your metrics ticking over. Mm. Um, you, it's to kind of try and be a little bit creative around what options you're looking at. So it's because these funding streams can be quite discreet and very well defined, like this is for commercialisation, this is for research. But I think trying to be, especially in the research sphere, because it's a much bigger pool, I think, being creative, like doing projects that are kind of on the edge of maybe your discovery so that you're pushing your discovery forward but you don't have to fully reveal what it is and you can still get potential publication out of it, some potential success with some grants on your CV. So also thinking about it that way as well. There is a perception that I want to put to you that academia takes a long time to do this and the timeframes are really long. What is your kind of insights into that, both of you? True, not true, misconception? Are we both smiling at each other and wondering what? <laughs> yes, Do you want to go first? <laughs> what, what, I mean, because I'm curious, how long in the tech transfer mm. office, what's the average life cycle from something coming in to... Oh, wow. Look, I mean, we is would... Is that just, how long is a piece of string? Or? Unfortunately, it really, really is. There's, there's no simple answer as to how long will it take us, a partnership between the researcher and the technology transfer office, how long will it take mm -hmm. us to commercialize the IP? I've seen projects, um, again, again, you need to think about what your definition of commercialization is. You know, is, is commercialization mm -hmm. successfully licensing your early stage technology to a, a biotechnology company, which will then themselves take presumably many years to actually fully commercialize it. So, it can take, it normally takes months, if not years, to develop some tech up enough to attract a licensee or an investor <coughs> to put significant amounts of money into further developing it under some formal agreement, whether it's a license agreement or a, an assignment of that IP into a, into a new company. Depending on the stage of the technology, I mean, we're talking mostly medical, biotech sort of stuff here. If you've got some software that's in the life sciences space and the software is sort of ready to go, it might not take too long to find a licensee that might want to take it on and spend some time and money 
productizing it and getting it launched to their customers. That might only take six months to do that. We've seen everything from license agreements that can be negotiated in as short a time as a couple of months to a year or more. A university is particularly <coughs> slow. I'd argue we would do everything we could to try and get commercial discussions happening and an outcome reached as soon as we possibly could. Sometimes you get bogged down on points, you know, and, and it might be the university that has a problem with a particular clause in a contract. It could easily be the investor or the industry partner that has a problem. We've had industry partners that take forever to commit to funding early stage research that they're really interested in. Partly one of the problem industry partners and the investors is that they, they can be a bit fickle. They're businesses can change very quickly, their priorities can change very quickly, and you might be discussing for something for six months or negotiating for six months, and all of a sudden their direction has changed and, and they're just not interested anymore. Mm. So I think it's a bit unkind to think that universities are always sort of <laughs> slow and hard to deal with. In my experience, I've seen it on the other side. Yeah. Angela, what do you reckon? Um, no, I think you're right. There is, there's a few different places where the delays can come in and definitely on the other side. Like you're saying, it can be quite fickle, actually. Mm -hmm. That's been my experience as well. All of a sudden, they're really interested and then they just go cold and you yeah. don't know why. And it could be for any matter of reason. And, you know, you kind of read the paper and then you go, okay, maybe that's why. Yeah. For me, from discovery, like literally the first experiment to signing some kind of a contract where mm -hmm. we handed over the IP, I guess. That was about four years, I think, in the end. And that included COVID. So COVID came in the midst of that as well. Yeah. yeah, so, and I was not working full time. That's the other, I think, important part of that. I think if I was working full time, that would have been quicker. But for myself, I wanted to have some financial stability. I didn't want to be running on grant to grant, like that kind of uncertainty. And so I actually had a job with WA Health during that time that I worked part-time. So I think if I was full-time, it would have gone a little bit quicker than that. But having said that, that's the time frame that it was. Yeah. So what are the biggest challenges then? It's, this is a question for both of you. In turn, when we think about tech transfer and progressing an idea down this pipeline and hopefully towards some kind of a commercial mm -hmm. partner or be they an investor or an existing company. Right. Lots and lots of challenges. <laughs> and you never really know where they're going to come from at the time that you might start a project. They're all beautiful, unique snowflakes. They are, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a fact of life that technology transfer offices are dealing with research that's often at a very, very early stage. And that's a challenge in its own right, is trying to uh, de-risk that enough and demonstrate the potential commercial um, applications of that technology with limited resources, trying to find that proof of concept funding to develop it and, and take it on, trying to understand the, the opportunity that lies there. Another challenge is that academics have huge workloads, trying to get the time sometimes that the tech transfer office needs with an academic in the early stages so that we fully understand why they're really excited about the opportunity and, and their commercial potential. And then a bit later on, when you're having confidential discussions with potential investors and potential industry licensees, you know, we, we need the inventors with us to help explain the, the science. But researchers are always thinking about the next grant, always thinking about the next publication. It can be a challenge getting time from researchers, which is sort of understandable. 
We've talked about the funding challenge. Egos and personalities <laughs> sometimes can come into play. And over the years, we would have had several, many, several <laughs> <laughs> researchers who just are very challenging to work with in terms of the way that they operate and the, and the attitude that they have towards intellectual property and technology transfer. They sort of want to see things done with their IP, but some of them are quite reluctant to, to help us. And that makes it really hard to sort of have serious conversations with investors when the researcher doesn't <laughs> want to be in the room or doesn't want to have those conversations. And we mentioned the fickle sort of the way that business can change and investors can change their mind very quickly. It can be very frustrating when you think you've got a deal on the table and all of a sudden it's, it's just sort of whipped away from you. Yeah, I think um, not knowing, you know, at the start of this, I didn't fully understand commercialisation. I had a conception of what it might be, what it could lead to. And, you know, that's kind of quite fictionalised. And so managing that expectation of actually it's not an easy journey. It is quite long. You're not going to make mountains of money. All of these kinds of things, I think, are expectations that sometimes people come into the room with and, you, you know, you then have to, to work with. And then I know this isn't in the question, but I think managing, having come through it now, it's then also managing who you go into business with, their expectations, and then also investor expectations as well of how quickly this is going to go, what actually is realistic. And then in terms of, you know, who you're going into business with, it's just the state of the data sometimes even. I mean, like we've just talked about, there's a lot of pressures on researchers. You're kind of just almost existing hand to foot in, in many cases. And so the data is not necessarily all picture perfect. You know it's there and you know it tells that story and you kind of know how it all goes together. But there might be a bit of messiness here and there and that can be particularly frustrating for people who are then coming into the story at a later stage. Mm. Another challenge can be... Researchers who, you sometimes see the phrase inventor syndrome banded around, you know, researchers who are sort of struggle to hand over their IP or let it go you know, and, and sometimes aren't happy with the way that an investor or a licensee might want to develop it. That's what the transfer means, really, in well, technology it is. transfer, I mean, it's a isn't it? It's transferring like the IP out most of, of the time, academia. Yeah, you do need to sort of let it go to some extent, which can be hard for some researchers. Yeah, I think you, you build a relationship with your particular entity. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, sometimes it can be for many, many years. Yeah. Um, mine was a very short journey, so that wasn't too hard to do. But I can imagine for, for others it can be quite difficult. Yeah. And sometimes stopping. Sometimes you have to stop and move on. And yeah, I there's a lot it. of people and projects around town that uh, are still progressing, pursuing projects which I think probably should have had a line drawn under them some time <laughs> ago. But... It can be hard to sort of just stop sometimes and move on. So lastly, Simon, what resources are available for a researcher or someone looking to understand what this process looks like within a university? Yeah, look, I mean, all universities have technology transfer offices, so the best thing to do is hop on their website. You should be able to find that quite easily. Find out who's in the office and find out a way of engaging with them. That should normally be through a bit of training. We always mm -hmm. used to do seminars periodically to introduce ourselves and explain the role of the office 
and talk about things like invention disclosures and the patenting process, which we haven't even touched today, and the different mechanisms of commercializing IP, which again, you know, we could have another hour on that, I guess. So find out who your technology transfer office is. Certainly at UWA, there's a really good resource available on the website, which is an inventor guide. That came in just as I was leaving UWA a couple of years ago, and it's a, a crystallization of all the sorts of things that researchers need to know about to engage with the tech transfer office, think about whether the IP that they're working on through their research program has commercial potential or not, and the sorts of things to think about when it comes to commercializing and licensing technologies or forming startup companies, you know, some of the pros and cons around those strategies and how involved you might expect to become as a researcher. Just a really good, simple guide to commercializing IP. And then another great resource is Knowledge Commercialization Australia. There's some really good training material available through their website. So yeah, there's, there's plenty around, but most of it, I think, is getting to know your tech transfer office and getting to some of their seminars. And for someone external to the university that is looking to understand what you know, great research projects or opportunities there might be, is that their port of call, so to speak, to into the university? Or do you, is there another better path, do you think? Yeah, I mean, the tech transfer office would know a lot about the research projects that have sort of research funding opportunities linked to them to try and develop them a bit further up. And certainly at UWA, there's an industry engagement team. So there, if you're an industry partner and you want to tap into the research capabilities at the university, yeah, find out who your industry engagement people are. Do you think universities are looking to engage more with industry? Absolutely. We need to do more and more. It's a great way of, I mean, the phrase is research diversification, isn't it? Research funding diversification. Researchers can and do get grants. But I think there's a lot to be said about if you can attract an industry partner in to fund something that they're interested in, that really gives it a bit of credibility. That's sort of a good way to sort of demonstrate that you're you're onto something useful. So universities are very keen on leveraging industry funding. I think it's a good counterbalance for researchers as well in terms of you're driven to do knowledge gain, but you need to also have something that is applicable in the broader space and so having that counterbalance of you know industry partnership I think is really important I think also with PhD scholarships now there's they're really heavily incentivized for industry partnership as well oh that's good yeah Yeah, yeah. so that's really great because I think it's just building that understanding in a researcher that look you know you can't just expect to be doing knowledge gain all the time yeah it needs to be more broadly applicable which is good and I think another bit of advice for researchers is to, is to engage with the bodies where there's an element of industry engagement. So mm-hmm. if you're in the medical biotech space, if you can, get to the Oz Biotech conference, you know, and meet people in the biotech industry. Because if you can just learn about what they're interested in and learn about what their challenges and opportunities are, it will help you shape your research to potentially be of interest to them in, in years to come. Mm-hmm. And it's only through sort of seeing that engagement with industry through groups like Ausbiotech. And if you're lucky enough to be able to go to bio in the States, your mind will be blown by the amount of interest and opportunity that is from people in industry or investors who want to invest and develop new technologies. 
But unless you're having that interaction with them, it's really hard to know what people want. Yeah. And I think if you're interested in commercialization or industry engagement, it's just like Simon's saying, just staying engaged in that conversation. Mm. So even listening to the odd podcast every now and again, um, you know, just meeting with the tech transfer office, even in your own institution, just having a conversation with your colleagues that have or are traversing that pipeline, just getting a sense of what they're up to, what it involves for them, and just so you're more familiar with what those pathways look like. Thanks, Simon. Thank you, Ange, for your time today and for that fascinating discussion. Hopefully there's some insights for our audience into the rich, complicated, but rewarding role of commercialising academic research into outcomes. So thank you both. Thanks, Trace. Thanks a lot. It's been fun. This podcast has been brought to you by Life Sciences WA, which is Western Australia's Life Sciences Industry Association, in collaboration with Talking Health Tech. It's been made possible with funding support from the Western Australian Government through the New Industries Fund and the Ready Initiative, managed by MTP Connect on behalf of the Medical Research Future Fund and with the support of Ant Health. If you liked this episode, please complete the feedback survey. There's a link to that survey you can access from within your podcast player. You can also follow Life Sciences WA on LinkedIn and Twitter or subscribe to the mailing list at lifesciencewa.com.au.